Lee Tao Shu walked into Auckland District Court last week wearing a face mask and dark glasses. She stood in the dock as Judge Charles Blackie convicted and fined her $7,500. Not a lot of money, but this case is important. It's the first time in New Zealand someone has been convicted of smuggling Asiatic black bear bile. Little glass vials and it was crystallised beer bile. Mm. And the vials had Chinese characters on them that said pure beer bile powder. It's just one of thousands of cases of wildlife smuggling in New Zealand. Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the battle over this multi-billion dollar global trade. It is a, a huge industry. It's often cited as being the third largest illegal trade behind weapons and narcotics. And it has an immense effect on the environment. We'll hear more from Doc's Dylan Swain about how he nabs people smuggling species in and out of the country. But first, RNZ's Amy Williams was in court last week. And just a warning, some of the details in this podcast are gory. Well, this was an interesting case because usually in court you get judges who are talking about humans. And this is one of those rare ones where the judge even said, no, this case is about animals. And it was also about the wider implications of New Zealand's commitment to international agreements that monitor the trade in endangered animals. And so it's actually a really important case for New Zealand, like a test case. And, and surprisingly, the first conviction in New Zealand for importing beer bile here. Yeah, and I don't imagine that most people would know what beer bile is potentially used for. Bears across Asia are taken from the wild and kept in tiny cages. Their bile is collected and used in traditional Chinese medicine. They're starved and dehydrated. They're drugged, restrained, and have their abdomens jabbed with unsterilised four-inch needles until their gallbladders are punctured to release their bile. The case cropped up for me close to when it was hitting court. Before then, I didn't actually really know about it, but it's something that Doc had been progressing for quite a while. This lady who had been accused previously of and warned three times for bringing specimens of endangered animals or plants into the country. Oh, so not just the bear bile? No, she had been warned way back in 2007 for bringing in more than 50 dried seahorses, which were endangered, and then two times after that for bringing in materials made of endangered plants. Mm -hmm. So she had received three warnings already, and so when she came in... In 2018, with the beer bile, her name was flagged at the border. And so they had her flagged. They searched her suitcases. She hadn't declared the beer bile. She had declared some bottles of Chinese wine. Oh, okay. But it was only when they searched the bag. And what did it look like? The vials, if you can imagine, a little perfume sample. Mm. Um, So little glass vials. And it was crystallised beer bile. Mm. And the vials had Chinese characters on them that said pure beer bile powder. And it was a Chinese customs officer who read those, who then picked up, oh, this is what this is. And what was she going to use it for herself or was she going to sell it? In court, they were clear that she didn't intend to use it for commercial purposes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The judge did question 
with what she was going to use 12 vials of beer bile for. There's an expert who says it can be used from anything from hangovers to more serious ailments. What did you find out about this woman in court? It was interesting, when she turned up, she was wearing a face mask and big sunglasses. You know, it looked like she didn't want to be recognised. When she's in New Zealand, she lives in a wealthy part of Auckland. And we found out that she is a regular traveller between New Zealand and China. And also that when she had been caught with the beer bile in 2018, she then left the country. So she went back to China and she didn't return to New Zealand for another year. It was only when she returned in 2019 that they were able to then start the process, I guess. In court, she had family members there supporting her, and I did ask if she would be happy to talk to Radio New Zealand. Her son declined on her behalf. You know, she had her head down, mask on, you know, as soon as she could. She just wanted to get out of there. She wanted name suppression, though. There was an application for name suppression, and in the end, the judge declined it. And Judge Blackie, he put out a pretty stern warning in this case that in future, people may face prison. That's a big step up from the fine that she got. It is, and it's interesting. They did cite a couple of other cases that have happened in the last five to ten years, one in which a couple of people had brought into New Zealand some fresh parrot eggs and they were imprisoned. But what Judge Blackie said was that because the legislation is over 30 years old, the $10,000 fine, if it was in today's terms, today's currency, would be much more, substantially more, and he said it was modest. What was different about this case it was, it was the very strong messaging sent by the courts around how this type of offending is viewed. Dylan Swain is Principal Compliance Officer for DOC. And we've certainly seen that in other areas of environmental crime as well. If we look at the increasing levels of fines around biosecurity offending, increasing levels of fines around RMA offending for, for dairy farmers dumping, for example, um, the courts do seem to be taking a much stronger line around environmental crime as a whole. And part of that is wildlife crime and the, the trained endangered species across borders, such was in this case. What's wrong with bear bile? I've looked at the videos, which are really horrible. The issue with black bears, uh, with Asiatic black bears in particular, is that you're looking at a wild population of around about 35 to 37,000 across northern China. Now, black bears have been traditionally um, utilised for their bear bile in traditional medicine for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So we're in a situation where this is culturally ingrained that it is a source of medicine for Mm. a variety of ailments, including high blood pressure, migraines. I understand there's a a multitude of reasons why you may be prescribed or recommended to to take beer bile as part of a um, a medicinal program. Um, Now... In the, I believe it was the late 70s or early 80s, there was a change from trying to take wild bears, kill the bear, remove the gallbladder and extract the bile from there, to starting to farm these bears and extracting the bile using catheters directly from the live bear. So it keeps the bear alive um, to enable ongoing production, if you like. When that change happened, there was 
a perceived increase in the number of people taking beer bile that was seen as sustainable. But what started to happen was there was a, a change in the way that the beer bile was perceived and that if it was coming from a farm beer, it wasn't seen as being str- as strong or as effective as what was coming from the wild, which led to a, a, an increase in demand for bile from wild court beers. And certainly when we talk to some of the NGOs, you know, particularly uh, Animals Asia, who run some beer uh, rescue facilities in China, there is evidence that bears rescued from these captive farms have uh, snare trap marks or, or might have paws missing, where they've actually been caught from the wild and brought into these captive facilities. And they're pumped full of antibiotics and other drugs just to keep them alive. Most of them develop massive infections, multiple diseases and malignant tumours that ultimately kill them. They're often suffering from wounds to their snouts, their teeth are worn away or are shattered from biting at the cage bars and their feet are cracked and rotting, having never felt the earth beneath them. So that is where CITES kicks in, if you like, because that is where there is a clear impact from this captive farming on the wild population which is why CITES says, no, look, we want to have a strong restriction on that trade because we don't believe that this captive farming and extraction of beer bile is having a positive effect on the wild population, if you like. Now, that is obviously ignoring all the animal welfare issues around that, um, but that is the essential reason why CITES kicks in, is because it, it's where the trade affects the wild population. In 2018, more than 6,300 people had species seized or surrendered at the border in New Zealand that are listed on CITES. That's the Convention on the Illegal Trade in Endangered Species, an international agreement that protects 36,000 species. And that's where Swain comes in. His job is to catch the smugglers. His time is split between tracking down poachers of New Zealand wildlife and people bringing species from offshore. I think a lot of people imagine what they see in, in movies and in, you know, crime shows on TV and that you, know, you, you have several cars you know, following out. from behind and <laughs> staking out. And, and look, there is a certain element of that. Um, certainly when Andreas Hahn got convicted here, I think that was about 2012, 2013, thereabouts. A German tourist, Andreas Hahn, has been sentenced to four months jail for taking four endangered jeweled geckos from Banks Peninsula. So he's the most recent person we've had convicted in New Zealand for attempted gecko smuggling. We were able to identify very fast where in New Zealand he was operating through our ranger network. Um, so myself and a couple of our, our other officers went out. We were able to locate his camper van very fast and we quite literally sat on a rock up in the bush with binoculars watching him taking photos as he was trying to collect geckos. Mm. Um, so there is very much a, an element of truth to, to what we see on TV. Um, I can assure you it's not quite as exciting as what uh, you see on TV, but we are out there you know, with the binos, with the camera, following along, recording activity as we see it. Yeah, and then how do you nab someone like that? Can you actually arrest people? Yes, we can. So we, we've got powers of arrest under both the Wildlife Act and under the Trade and Endangered Species Act. Uh, in this particular case, uh, it, it was quite remote, um, the area that we were in, so we requested police assistance knowing that this guy more than likely had geckos on him. Um, we waited until he picked up his, his camper van and he was driving out from where he was parked and we, we pulled his vehicle over, you know, said who we were and, and proceeded to search the van and, and found four jeweled geckos. 
and I was able to, to have a brief interview of him before police arrived and, and made the arrest and, and took him away. And he, he ultimately spent four months inside Christchurch Prison. What is it about geckos? Because there have been some pretty interesting cases over the years, haven't there? I mean, there was the guy who was caught trying to smuggle them out in his underpants. A German man who tried to smuggle 44 native geckos and skinks out of New Zealand in his underpants is going to jail for three and a half months. A doc claimed it was a specially made pouch of eight compartments to carry the different species of gecko and skink. Customs also found a gecko rolled up in a sock in his luggage. New Zealand geckos in particular are seen as highly desirable because I understand they're one of only two uh, lots of geckos in the world that are diurnal, so they're active during the day. And New Zealand geckos have particularly bright colouring. If you look at the the jeweled geckos from Christchurch and Otago Peninsulas, remarkable markings and extraordinary colouration. The same with the harlequin gecko on Stewart Island, again, a, a remarkably coloured species. And these European collectors in particular see these things as animals to be desired and, and to be wanted and had. And interestingly, a, another piece of anecdotal information that we've had from, from Europe is that there's an element of status amongst the illegal gecko collecting community is that if you have a New Zealand gecko and you're able to successfully keep it in Europe, it's seen as a, as a bit of a, a status symbol because they are very hard to keep in captivity outside of New Zealand, simply due to climatic conditions and, and different diets, etc. The illegal trade in wildlife, I'm reading, is worth at least $19 billion annually. So do you feel like you have got the resources to tackle this? Because mu- there must be some really sophisticated smuggling rings around there are some very, very sophisticated smuggling rings around. You know, we we know that whenever we take a certain type of action against gecko smuggling, um, the the smugglers will change the way in which they approach that smuggling. We have a very dedicated team within the department who are out to catch these people, and there are some very dedicated people that we work alongside within customs and within MPI to help tackle the situation, because. Not only is it a risk to New Zealand species, but we don't know what some of these people are also bringing into the country. Um, certainly one of the people that we refused entry to recently um, that we had concerns about potentially wanting to take geckos out of New Zealand has previously been convicted for trying to bring chameleons into New Zealand. So there are people within New Zealand who are interested in keeping things like chameleons? Absolutely. And certainly if we look at things like snakes, there have been instances in the past. Admittedly, a lot of them are not um, CITES listed, so it's mainly MPI that deal with them. But there's an element within organised crime groups that see snakes as being particularly desirable things to own. And I think that's a combination of what the snake has sort of symbolised, but also it's almost sticking an additional middle finger to authorities from New Zealand crime groups if they can get hold of snakes. So what are some of the most surprising things that you have tracked down? In some ways it's obvious on the surface, and I'm particularly thinking of elephant ivory cases, where you see elephant ivory being illegally brought into New Zealand. You know, There's been instructions given to, to the sellers overseas of how to try and sneak it past border authorities. And these people are clearly bringing it in knowing that there's the potential for profit. That's 
what's really struck me, I guess, as being surprising, is that there's this absolute knowledge that these animals are hugely under threat and hugely endangered, yet they, that is seen as an opportunity to profit. I know it's probably not quite what you're asking. Because of, 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 I want to know of about the, the snakes. The surprising and the... I, I, I thought you would, but, you know, it's, uh, I, I think there is that element to it as well. You know, the, the, the way that snakes are brought into the country, again, you know, we, there was a recent incident a couple of years ago now where, where MPI prosecuted a, a young fellow uh, under the Biosecurity Act and, and he was trying to smuggle chameleons and, and corn snake and I think possibly an iguana as well, into the country, hidden inside a milkshake cut through the mail centre. What was he bringing them in? They'd been wrapped up inside socks and were inside uh, one of the old uh, metal milkshake cups that you <laughs> stick onto a, you know, you kind of put up underneath the milkshake maker and it stirs it around. They'd, they'd been packed in one of them. And I mean, it's only an assumption, but the, the assumption is that they've been put in this cup so that they'd avoid detection through any x-rays that they went through. Um, you know, there, there's been cases where people have been caught with things like Weta in a bra. And that, this was in the, the very early 2000s before my time. But That's a bit daring. It is. <laughs> you know, it's it's something that, as an investigator, you, you sh- it's important to try and get an understanding of, of just how passionate these people are about the animals that we're equally passionate about because they will go to those lengths. Yeah, but, I mean, passionate or just keen to make lots of money? Well, it's both because, especially amongst the gecko community, there is a genuine passion and mm. a genuine love of these animals. It is not always about um, making money. You know, we've talked to people that we've caught before for trying to smuggle geckos, and they they've been told that you know, come to New Zealand, get some geckos, take them out, and you'll be allowed to keep some of them. And that's often what the driver is, rather than hey, we're going to pay you to smuggle geckos, and, and there's going to be profit here. And it can be quite a, a, an unusual mindset and that people are, are just so passionate about these things. How much do geckos sell for? It's very, very difficult to tell. And, I, I mean, traditionally we, we haven't liked to, to broadcast it mm. um, simply because that they can go for a lot of money. Uh, and there have been instances in the past where after court cases there has been publicity around the value of geckos and local... Um, reptile houses and zoos have been broken into with people trying to, to get hold of these animals. But we, we are talking in the thousands of dollars. It does depend on species, and you need to know where to sell them. That's the the difference between um, some of these more organised groups from overseas versus the, the instances that we've had in the past where people have, have you know, tried to steal geckos to on-sell, and, and they've ultimately been caught by, by trying to sell them in the wrong places. you're winning Dylan do you feel like you know you're catching the worst of them we are making strong strides there is no doubt that there is still poaching going on and we can see that by the the changes in what animals we see being traded online overseas but we are certainly making good progress that is for sure um I you know it's we are winning but it is a long battle I will assure you of that do you think that our laws are strong enough here I do. Um, the The Wildlife Act has was recently uh, upgraded in terms of penalties available, so that was increasing sentences, particularly for commercially motivated offending. We've recently had the ability to issue infringement notices introduced, so that will start coming online later this year as another enforcement tool available for for lower level offending. Um, I know that Judge Blackie made some comments around 
the Training Endangered Species Act being 30 years old, and there is an element of truth in that, in that it, you know, perhaps if it was passed more recently, there might be higher fines and, and imprisonment terms available. But having said that, you know, three to five years in prison for smuggling threatened or endangered species is, you know, comparatively speaking, is a reasonably high sentence. Mm. The Trade and Endangered Species Act is currently being reviewed, so we'll certainly pass uh, Judge Blackie's comments on to, to the Minister as part of that review. And you never know, there, there might be an opportunity to, to increase penalties. Back to the bear bile smuggler. And if you think the $7,500 fine is too lax, here's Dylan Swain again. I think it's clear to start off by saying that we don't think that she's someone who's necessarily smuggling in for money. Um, this wasn't part of some organised smuggling ring. I would put her more in the category of of ignorant and perhaps arrogant in terms of how New Zealand law affects her, what she needs to do to clear, and also on the source of the types of things that she brings into New Zealand. I understand there was some ignorance in previous instances where she wasn't quite sure what was in things, uh, I don't think the, the same argument could be made in this case and that the, the items being brought in were very clearly labelled pure bear bile powder. Mm. Um, but I, I certainly don't think she was part of a, a smuggling ring, for want of a better term. But this isn't the first time, is it? This is not the first time she's been caught with something illegal. That's right. She's been caught before with seahorses. Uh, off the top of my head, it was around about 50 or 55 dried seahorses, a, around 140 grams of dendrobium stem, and a small number of medicine balls that contained uh, costus root, uh, which are all endangered or threatened species. But again, in each occasion, they were small amounts. Um, I, I very much don't want to minimise the offending. However, that it perhaps goes to explain why the department had given warnings on previous occasions. They clearly hadn't sunk in. So on this occasion, when we had the bear bile, that's why um, Mr Chu was prosecuted and brought before the courts. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get the detail downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. If you're using Apple, give us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to RNZ's Amy Williams and Dylan Swain from the Department of Conservation. Kaki te ano.